To support our work at the Izzy and Mortada Picture Show and the work of other independent creators like us, sign up to listen to the podcast on Nebula. Nebula is the creator-owned streaming platform that hosts great videos and podcasts like the one you're listening to now. Sign up today at nebula.tv slash picture show, and you will get access to this podcast plus other great podcasts and videos. Sign up at Nebula and help support independent media creators. That's nebula.tv slash picture show. Let's go. Let's do it, Rockapella. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, I'm Mortada. And I'm Izzy. And this is the Izzy and Mortada Picture Show. So today we are talking with Isaac Butler, who is co-host of Slate's Working Podcast, as well as author of The Method, How the 20th Century Learned to Act. Um, Isaac, welcome. We are so excited to speak with you today. Oh, it's 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 very exciting to be here. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> um, so we were, you know, extremely excited to talk to you because we loved your book. Um, and also we are just obsessed with actors and thinking about acting. And we really wanted to kind of use all of the knowledge that you have have garnered from all the research that you've done and all the writing that you've done about this history and kind of think about, you know, acting today. Um, mm-hmm. and yeah, how, totally. and how people are talking about it, the discourse around acting, I guess. Um, <laughs> so I guess I'd like to, I'd love to start with, um, a question that kind of brings the structure of your book into the 20th, 21st century. Uh, sure. you, you kind of chronicle the practice of acting through time and you hone in on the techniques and political context and the big personalities that define these different eras in acting. And I was wondering how you would characterize this current moment. Like if you were writing a chapter in your book about 2023, what are some of the things that you might hone in on? Mm, it's it, Well, I think it's, it's really complicated to try to describe anything going on in culture uh, in a weird way, you know, once you hit the 90s uh or you know particularly like once the century turns and i lived through all that i mean i'm i'm ancient now i'm 44 years old um and and you know one of the things that happens is for much of the 20th century you kind of have like a dominant culture and a counterculture and there's lots of different things going on within both of those but you still have a dominant culture and a counterculture and now you have a much more fractured much more siloed much, uh, you know, more um, diverse in every sense of the word, (laughs) Um, uh, not just in terms of identity, cultural landscape. And so it's very, very hard to track what is going on. So I can only speak to sort of the big trends and and what I see going on. And, And so I think there's a number of things that come to mind. The first is that, you know, just as we, you know, have our own fandoms and our own things we like and blah, 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 blah. I think the idea of a shared criteria of quality has started to kind of break down. And that's part of why you see come Oscar season, a lot of, you know, biopics, even though no one likes biopics, you see a lot of, <laughs> you know, um, big physical transformations and people doing accents and wearing, you know, wearing wigs or whatever, because that is like instantly recognizable as good because you can see how much work the person has done. So that's, that's one thing I think we see going on. Um, another thing that's going on that um, uh, I write about at the very, very end of the book is that you know for most of the history of acting the one of the outside forces on a very practical level that shaped it are the limits of human perception can the audience see you can they hear you do they um know what you're doing what you're trying to do and so a lot of what's happening over the story of my book is that the spaces that acting takes place on have gotten smaller and smaller and smaller right? Big theaters that are dimly lit to smaller theaters that are brightly lit to very small theaters that are, you know, where the audience is only 10 feet away from you to movies, right? Mm. Um, We have solved the limits of human problem 
for the most part, you know, I mean, as long as you're working with people who are technically competent, you can, you know, see and hear very well what's going on. The, the new problem that's shaping acting is the limits of human attention. And I think mm -hmm. what you get out of that is a performance style that's much clearer, that is much less nuanced, that is much less mysterious that, you know, the bad guy, you know, he's the bad guy, the good guy, you know, he's the good mm. guy. Um, uh, characters have gotten flatter, which I mean as a description, not as a criticism. Um, uh, you know, there's just the, the complexity of the human animal. I think there's much less of in the work that we're seeing right now, because out of a fear on some level that audiences will be bored. Um, and then you also see a reaction against that in the kind of very quietly observed naturalism of Kelly Reichardt or on TV, somebody somewhere, you know, um, uh, rectify, which isn't around anymore. But, you know, the idea that that that, you know, we're going to actually go further into naturalism. So those are some of the big, big trends that I see personally. I want to talk a little bit about the method or what we talk about these days when we talk about the method, you know. Um, so there is this misconception, I think, which is something yeah. that you've talked about, about method acting. Like you hear stories like, you know, I don't know, Jared Leto sending Viola Davis a rat to show his commitment as a method actor or, you know, guy. Brian, <laughs> yeah. yeah, or Brian Cox, like complete contempt his co-star's method, basically, for Jeremy Strong. These are the stories you hear about when, when method is brought up. So my question to you, uh, these are misconceptions. Are these actors method? And no. Sort of and, 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 no, they're not. Sorry, I don't mean to interrupt you, but, you know, <laughs> and they'll they'll say as much in interviews. You know, that's right. the thing that, that I find really bizarre is, you know, mm -hmm. in that profile in The New Yorker, Jeremy Strong says explicitly, I am not a method actor. Here's what I call the thing that I do. Uh, Jared Leto, I think, doesn't call himself a method actor, I, although, honestly, I find him so irritating, I can't even deal. <laughs> um, Daniel Day-Lewis very explicitly said, I am not a method actor uh, in an interview for The Wall Street Journal when he was preparing to do my left foot. Um, uh, at the same time, I am a descriptivist when it comes to language and the meaning of language evolves. So I, I, mm -hmm. I try to approach it as annoyed as I get about this stuff and as much as I can be a, a pedant about it. There's really three different things we mean as a culture when we talk about the method, right? Mm -hmm. the, the first one, which is the one you're referring to, is this incorrect understanding that what the method involves is this kind of incredibly complicated version of participatory research where you're trying to live your life as close to the life of the character as possible. You don't break character on set. Maybe you buy props, personal props that you have on you. Uh, you might work out to get the character's body or you might eat a ton of food to get the character's body. You know, it, it's that kind of intense stuff that comes to us largely through Robert De Niro's work in the 1970s leading up to um, and sort of triumphing with Raging Bull. Mm -hmm. Um That is not actually the method. And the folks who, you know, the 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 actual method people find that very bewildering and they're sort of like what the what the fuck is that um so when brian cox is railing against method american actors he really just means actors who take themselves too seriously and they kind of let the work get to them i think uh -huh. um yeah. i also feel like i mean we could talk about this later but brian cox is clearly obsessed with jeremy strong at this point in that he's <laughs> you just can't give an interview without talking about jeremy strong it's really, really yeah weird you know he gave that interview talking about smoking pot in his trailer or whatever and then suddenly he was talking about Jeremy Strong again. And it's sort of like, why don't you just count your McDonald's spokesperson millions <laughs> and uh, get over it? Um, uh, True. <laughs> then, you know, um, more seriously, though, there's what people who teach the method actually are talking about. And that's a series of techniques and ideas and values and exercises codified by the acting teacher, Lee Strasberg, beginning in the 1930s, and that he taught up until his death in 1982. And so it means that you are learning this this you know these series of techniques and ideas that really have to do with developing the inner self your inner self and all of its idiosyncrasy and peculiarity and then mm -hmm. using that inner self to connect to the inner self of the character and bring that character to life in a unique and uncliched way mm -hmm. then 
there is the third definition, which has been around as long as that second definition has, which is basically anyone in the United States, largely in the United States, but anyone who connects to the lineage of the 19th and 20th century actor, director, and theorist, Constantine Stanislavski. Stanislavski is the primary influence on Lee Strasberg, but Lee Strasberg actually had a bunch of rivals as acting teachers, um, many of whom you've heard of. The big names are Stella Adler, Sanford Meisner, and Uta Hagen. Um, and all of them traced their teaching back to Stanislavski. And so in the night, starting as early as the 1950s, the method became a catch-all term for Stanislavski-based acting education, like the adaptations yeah. of Stanislavski. But, you know, Stella Adler did not like it if you called what she did the method. And neither did Sam right. Meisner because they hated mm -hmm. Lee Strasberg so much. They were like, that's the crazy stuff that asshole that the actor's studio does. You know, that's that's mental illness masquerading <laughs> as acting. We, we do this other thing which is yeah. connected to Stanislavski and he's fucked Stanislavski up. Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, so... You know, you mentioned Danny Day-Lewis, for instance, who is thought of as this D actor's actor, and he says he's not messed. And I can't really recall any actors who actually admit to being messed actors, especially people who, you know, get all the awards and stuff. Like the only person I can think of right now is Sally Field. Um, but is, is Weirdly, sort that's of like... exactly who I was thinking of. It's so funny. <laughs> I mean, I could um, rattle off a bunch of them. I mean, Gene Hackman's retired now, but Gene Hackman, Al Pacino, Ellen Burstyn, uh, Bradley yeah. Cooper studied at the Actor Studio Program. Uh, the new school, I don't know if he actually still refers to himself as a method actor. Vincent D'Onofrio. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, there's a lot of them. There's a lot of them. Yeah. But my, my question to you is about this sort of like, I think the culture looks a little bit askance at yeah. method actors. So do you think that's why, you know, some actors might not admit to being method actors, even though they they are? The culture's always had a really weird relationship to the method because, you know, in the 50s, it becomes this insurgent movement that just completely overturns our understanding of what good acting is and then in the 60s it kind of has a you know more complicated position and then the 70s all of the students of adler and meisner and strasberg break through and become the new hollywood actors i mean all of those actors not all of them mm -hmm. i'm speaking hyperbolically but almost all of those actors studied Strasberg technique or Adler technique or Meisner technique or some mix of those things, or they worked mm -hmm. with Uta Hagen, you know? And so it really became a new establishment. Mm -hmm. And then as, almost as soon as it became a new establishment, all those teachers started dying and it became the thing to fight back against. So we've always had this kind of complicated, conflicted response to it because we have these amazing performances that come out of it but we also have these very dark stories about where it can lead people or mm -hmm. you know um we want i think on some level we want acting to be effortless and it's not you know for a lot of people it's really really hard work and i think we also have a complicated reaction to actors actually talking about like no i work really hard at this and it's really difficult and this is a thing that that i take really seriously we don't always love it when artists take their work seriously and of course you could take your work too seriously but um you know an, an actor being willing to say no this is important to me and i take this seriously and this is what it means i mean you know like like we have a certain amount of contempt for that in general mm -hmm, i think that's yeah. one reason why you know people find the british so charming in, in in interviews is that they don't really like to talk about their acting process they're sort of like oh i just go and i do it <laughs> yeah. not, you know that's not really true honestly right. uh, they just don't you know that's a that's a sort of cultural thing in british acting that you don't really talk about your process all that much I feel like yeah. there's kind of a history of actors who who start in film or maybe like become famous for film, but then use the stage as a way of like gaining legitimacy. So if yeah, they work with the right, bonafides, yeah, yeah. So if they work with the right coach or they appear in a play, like suddenly people consider them serious actors. But I'm wondering if you think that that's a very like 20th century idea. Like, do you think the power dynamic has shifted around so that? You know, actors don't really have to do that anymore to be well, considered it used, serious. It used to be that the stage was all that mattered to mm -hmm. these folks. You know, I mean, like they did film, they cared about film, they took it seriously. But in interviews, they would always just be like, the real test of acting is the stage. And those folks, you know, in the mid 20th century, they all started as stage actors. You know, Marlon Brando started as a stage actor. Carl Malden was a stage actor. Ben Gazzara was a stage actor. You know, Lee, Lee Strasberg and Stella Adler and Sanford Meisner's background was the theater. They thought 
that film was this kind of corrupting or at least American, you know, Hollywood film. It was like Sodom and Gomorrah or something. You know, it's this <laughs> it's this corrupting influence that if you really cared about art, you would resist it as much as possible. And part of that is because uh, they came of age during the height of the studio system when it really was a factory, you know, putting out as much product as possible every year. Um, a lot of those movies are great. I'm not denigrating the studio system. I'm talking about their point of view on it. Um, mm -hmm. And so the theaters always kind of held that place in the imagination. Now, I don't, I don't know. It is true that the actors that we think of as being like the great actors do often return and do stage work. Oscar Isaac and Jessica Chastain are both on Broadway right now. You know, um, I, my guess would be Adam Driver will be back in a couple of years. You know, um, Jeremy Strong is returning to Broadway next season in an Ibsen revival. Um, Greta Gerwig was going to do Three Sisters off Broadway and then, you know, fell through because of the pandemic and then the, the um, Barbie filming schedule. There was a, a dispiriting period in the aughts where it was just like a lot of famous people who had no business being on stage um, were appearing on stage and then getting these weird rave reviews that they didn't deserve, you know, because they're really charismatic. Um, um, you who know, are you thinking of? <laughs> well, I mean, a big one, a big one, the one that really broke me was Jennifer Garner in Cyrano de Bergerac, who <laughs> gave like a, a, a truly um, like absurdly bad performance and got a rave review in the in the new york times um oh, wow. you know there was a lot of that kind of stuff um there's a theater company here in new york called mcc whose artistic directors are also casting directors and so they often have these really famous people who didn't really necessarily belong on stage in the plays you know there was a lot of that going on now i usually feel like if an actor is appearing on stage on Broadway. They are actually someone who takes the theater seriously. It's not just a bid for themselves being taken seriously mm -hmm. um, in general. Yeah, um, I know. I was when you mentioned that I was thinking of Tavi Gevinson, but I guess she's not a real actor. But she was on Broadway. <laughs> oh, Ta well, Tavi Gevinson's been in a few shows. I've never been super into her work as a stage actor, but she keeps trying it. Like she does actually seem to care about it. Do you know what yeah. I mean? It I seems less like twice. I'm going to do. Yeah, it, yeah. It seemed less like I'm going to go do this thing one time, and then then that will signal that I'm serious actor and can pivot to this other thing which is how it started to feel after yeah. after a while but i think two examples that come to my mind of people who went on stage and then became better actors on screen are scarlett johansson after she did view from the bridge and emma stone right. after she did um cabaret so she literally yeah. won an oscar the year after mm -hmm. yeah yeah totally i mean the stage you know it requires different muscles it requires a different way of approaching the character film and television famously shot out of order you do the same thing multiple times so that they can capture multiple versions of it the performance is then assembled by the director and editor in post you know you might come back and redub lines it might be rewritten in post and suddenly you have a new story that you have to figure out you know there's all that kind of stuff on stage, you have to have like a coherent and sustainable idea of the character that takes you from beginning and end. And you have to be able to execute that over the course of two hours. It's just a totally, totally different skill set. There are stage actors who aren't great on camera uh, uh, either and are, are, are amazing um, theatrically because they can't really modulate for film where you actually want to do often as little as possible. Yeah, mm. totally. I mean, um, actually, speaking of that, I'd love to ask you kind of a, a big topic question, but um, sure. Uh, I want to ask you about like truth in acting. Um, <laughs> truth. Capital truth. T, truth. Capital T, trademark. Um, love it. So when I was reading a, uh, your book, I was thinking a lot about camp, weirdly, because yeah. like, you know, so Joan Crawford crying in a sequin dress on the beach um, isn't realistic necessarily but there's like a, a recognizable truth to that emotion because we feel like the exaggeration of it um describes how we feel in a certain way right like camp speaks to truth in that way uh but oh, when yeah. we see when we see like method actors bring their techniques to the screen often like what they're doing is finding or developing subtlety and naturalism and so i'm wondering how you think about truth in acting and uh, whether or not anyone in the group theater or actor studio kind of talked about 
camp or other forms of finding truth that they found interesting? Oh, that's a really good question. Well, the idea of camp didn't really exist in the 1930s right, right. as a phrase that people were throwing around as far as I know. Um, but uh, uh, I, two, that, that's two different questions. So I'll, I'll start with the, the, the people within the group, the Bobby Lewis or Robert Lewis, but everyone called him Bobby, Bobby Lewis in his three books, um, slings and arrows method or madness and advice to the players refers frequently to the idea of style. He's talking about style all the time. And he is the one in the group who cared the most about the style of a production and the way performances and tone fit into that style. He also not coincidentally was gay. And, um, you know, I think he is the, and, and if you read his books has a very, uh, camp sense of humor and sensibility within those books. Um, uh, and so I think that he is really the one who brought those ideas and was interested in those ideas. And how can you use Stanislavski's ideas and techniques to get to different styles, some of which may be heightened, some of which may be more meta theatrical, some of which mm -hmm. may be, you know, not straightforward naturalism. And he did direct at least one show later on in the group than what I'm really focusing on that goes in, in that direction. He also directed the original production of Brigadoon. So, you know, um, um, and uh, Strasberg himself was very interested in Kabuki, which is not mm. naturalistic at all. Right. He was really interested in Brecht. He actually directed, uh, he did like uh, some scene studies once with Brecht in the room of Brecht's work. Um, Stanislavski, of course, loved Commedia dell'arte. Stanislavski's early experiments in his techniques were actually not for naturalistic plays. They were for symbolist plays because he'd already done a bunch of naturalism. Um, uh, so I think it can all work for all sorts of different ideas and ways of approaching um, style, which gets to the second part of your question, which is simply that I believe there are lots of different routes to the truth. You know, and one of the routes to the truth is with acknowledged heightened artifice. You know, that's part of what Meyerhold was doing, part of what Brecht is doing, that's part of what Camp's doing, but that's also what Spike Lee's doing, right? Mm -hmm. Like you watch Malcolm X, that's not a naturalistic movie in terms of how it's directed at all you know it switches genres all the time there's you know the camera's doing all sorts of interesting things there's of course the tracking dolly or whatever you call it you know the signature spike lee shot right before he dies you know the, the spike lee's work is very hype you know mm -hmm. um yeah. it's getting to a different kind of truth um, Joan Crawford crying on the beach is getting to a certain kind of truth. And in fact, if you want a wonderful example of how both those styles can coexist at once, there's the, uh, the movie humor-esque. Yeah, um, that's exactly what I was thinking of. <laughs> yeah, you know, John Garfield, the first method actor to make become a star uh, yeah. uh, in Hollywood. And Joan Crawford, who was his friend and was, you know, married to an ex-member of the group, French Atone, and um, uh, uh, is the exact opposite opposite and yet those styles coexist um perfectly i mean it's also a wonderful movie that everyone should watch if you like a star is born it's a gender flipped star is born it's really moving and wonderful and then also actually we should say in that movie you also have oscar levant giving a, a kind of high camp performance as the gay best friend you know um uh, uh within it as well yeah I think the, the best screening of Human Rights that I ever saw was with a drag queen commenting throughout the film which was just <laughs> amazing, amazing yeah, that's ideal fun. yeah <laughs> yeah so I wanted to, so that brings me to this question that I wanted to talk to you about. So Marlon Brando is associated with the method, whether he likes it or not, whether he hated Strasbourg or not. Um, I think you get into that into his book in your book. Um, but when I think of his performances, I think of an actor sort of being open and vulnerable on screen, like Montgomery Clifts, another one. His rival, fact, yeah. Yeah, and in fact, many female actors. You know, women are allowed to be vulnerable where men have to sort of break from machismo to show emotion on screen. And I think in my friend group, you know, as gay men, the highest compliment we can give a male actor is to call him an actress right. for that reason. <laughs> so, so Isaac, my question is to you is how do you think sort of these gendered societal expectations 
affect an actor's preparation, you know? Totally. Well, you know, one of the things the method was doing was, uh, for male actors specifically, was allowing them to break with the dominant gender roles and the dominant understandings of what it meant to be masculine on screen. If you watch A Streetcar Named Desire, right? Turn the sound off for a second and just watch it. Marlon Brando's pretty effeminate in that movie. There's an effem I mean, he's incredibly butch, but he's also incredibly femme at the same time. There's a grace and specificity to gesture that I think Code says as effeminate throughout. John Garfield, same thing's true in, in Four Daughters, John Garfield's first movie. Montgomery Clift, who was queer, you know, he's, he's a small, soft-featured, he's got those giant cow eyes, you know. Um, uh, he's not a masculine presence. And then you go forward later on into... Dustin Hoffman in The Graduate as a sex, sexy leading man. That's weird. Al Pacino um, is is in The Godfather is like a gorgeous, you know, but it's he's a small man with a with a teeny physique. I mean, he looks like a sylph or something, right? So part of what's going on with the method is actually redefining what masculinity is, and frankly, who gets to count as fuckable. I mean, that is a thing that is that that the method really is doing. It's changing our ideas of who's hot. Um, on the women's side, it's really interesting because there are a ton of women method actors, um, a ton of them. Uh, many of Strasbourg's most dedicated students were women. You brought up Sally Field, but, you know, I brought up Ellen Burstyn, but, you know, uh, Shelley Winters, Jane Fonda, um, you know, Joanne Woodward, um, uh, uh, Kim Stanley, um, Eva Marie Saint. I mean, it really goes on and on and on. Um, uh, and I think part of what the method allowed them to do there is is you know play around with being more complicated characters on screen you know to play around with the sort of other other tones that are available now it is true that it didn't break through gender norms the way that brando did right mm -hmm. um yeah. But I think that actually has as much to do with the industry and what roles were available as it does with the theories and ideas themselves. And in fact, many of the method actors, female method actors of the 70s credit, you know, what they learned with the method as, as part and parcel of their feminist project as performers. You know, is there kind of um, is there kind of a relationship in the same way that like the method is breaking down masculinity? Is there a way that the method is breaking down glamour? Because I think about someone like Joan sure, Joanne yeah. Woodward, who wasn't necessarily known for like she's a very beautiful woman, but she wasn't taking on these kind of glamour girl roles, right? Like I think by Hollywood standards, she was not a particularly beautiful woman, frankly. Mm. Um, <laughs> uh, at least you know, I mean, genuinely, and that's not me talking. I think she's very beautiful, but I just mean yeah. I don't think the industry treated her as a really beautiful woman. Do right. you know what I mean? Um, yeah. Uh, but if, but, you know, yes, it is true that what she's doing is is doing stuff that doesn't necessarily have to do with her beauty. Jane Fonda has roles like Barbarella, do you know what I mean? But she also has roles like Clute and Coming Home, yeah. you know. Um, uh, uh, Ellen Burstyn, you know, has a really complicated filmography, I would say. Um, so, yes, I totally agree with you. You know, the, the actor who I write about at great length in the book, who is often was called the female Brando during her life and afterwards, is Kim Stanley. And there's nothing feminine about a Kim Stanley performance. I mean, she is like a typhoon on screen and supposedly was on stage as well. Um, mm -hmm. Her screen career didn't work out. She didn't make very many movies. They didn't do well. She didn't like making movies. She was an alcoholic. She left the industry for 15 years, you know, but um, if you sort of go back and you watch Goddess um, and you imagine it having the cultural place of Streetcar Named Desire and On the Waterfront or something, it would have totally remade female performance, I think. Yeah, I only think of Francis when I think of Kim Stanley as far as screen performances. I mean, and she's amazing and she's so terrifying in that movie. Jesus Christ. I mean, that movie's hard to watch. It's not, it's hard. It's, it's, it, it, yeah, that's a hard to watch movie for a whole number of reasons, but she's amazing. Yeah. And Jessica Lange was her student. Yeah, right? they're both so, like, amazing. Part, part of what's going on in that movie as well is like in Godfather 2 with, with Lee Strasberg and Al Pacino. Because uh, Lee, of course, plays Hiram Roth in Godfather 2. You have mm -hmm. an actor and their student playing this complicated 
parent-child, you know, kind of relationship uh, uh, out on screen. Yeah. Isaac, I wanted to ask you, you, you were an actor, you are now a cultural critic. And, you know, as a critic, I sometimes struggle with what to write about uh, acting and actors. I love talking about acting and actors. But, you know, how, how, how do you break down the sort of like, oh, they were good or believable or all these things that are sort of like easy to say and talk about Yeah, there's about a it. shorthand, right? Yeah. Compelling, charismatic, believable. <laughs> totally. Uh, those, you know, I, I try not to use embodied. Those I mean, there's, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Yeah, there's a there's a bunch of them. Uh, uh, I don't know, Izzy. Have you come up with any that are better? Than that? I don't know. <laughs> Certainly like, not. No, I have no idea. Um, uh, so, I feel but like, my question to you, yeah. as somebody who writes about actors and acting, and you know, have all this history and did all this research, what do you look for um, when you're assessing a performance? Well, I let me talk about the craft of writing about acting for just a second, because my okay. my one weird this one weird trick, right? <laughs> my one weird trick, which I do over and over and over again in the book, is to try to just describe what they're doing, mm -hmm. right? Try to describe what they're doing. So, for example, Marlon Brando in A Streetcar Named Desire, just because we mentioned it a bunch of times. I swear I'm not obsessed with Marlon Brando in A Streetcar Named Desire <laughs> any more than a normal person should be. You know, there's that scene where he's talking about the Napoleonic Code. That entitles oh, yeah. him to the yeah. wife's property. You know, down here we have something called the Napoleonic Code. But while <laughs> he's doing it, he's like eating chicken and it's like falling out of his mouth and his hands are covered in grease or whatever, right? So it's like, what is what is he doing? Like, like that's I've never seen an actor prior to Streetcar do something like that, right? So you, so you start to look at like, like you would when describing a painting. It's like, oh, well, there's an impasto of this and of that. And then you start to get mm. to the meaning through the what. So just start with the what. What is their gestural vocabulary like? What are their eyes doing? What are their voice doing? You know, et cetera, et cetera, and so forth. And then uh, if you just focus in on that, I think a lot will just sort of naturally unlock in your brain about like, oh, well, this means this, or, you know, this is how this is responding to that. You know, if you look at another example is, you know, Al Pacino at the beginning of The Godfather is just, mm. it's a totally shut off performance right he is hiding mm -hmm. from you he's charming but there's like mm -hmm. there's like he's really not doing very much he's sitting still almost all the time he's listening a lot of the time okay so what does his listening look like right and then how does it change once he decides to do the hit and how is he letting you know what's going on with michael given that the scene where he kills the guy is wordless you know um uh yeah. it's it's all it's it's a lot of stuff like that it's like you start with the what so what i'm looking for first is you know when i'm watching a performance is oh what interests me about that you know um uh when did it affect me and then I'll I'll write the time code down. And then I just go back and watch it and then be like, oh, this is what they were doing that did that to me. You know, I was recently writing a piece. I've been writing a piece on Nicolas Cage that's hopefully going to go up soon. Um, and so I was watching and rewatching a bunch of Nicolas Cage movies, not all 107 of them, but a bunch of them. And it's interesting <laughs> to think about yeah. like, what is he actually doing? You know, when right. he says, uh, I ain't no freaking monument to justice. I lost my bride. I lost my hand. Johnny has his bride. Johnny has his hand. Right. What is he actually doing in that scene that's so compelling? And um, that I think leads you to some interesting places. Well, I mean, how does that affect the research process for your book? Because when you're talking about an ephemeral medium, there are obviously so many allegedly iconic performances that you can't yeah. see and, and judge for yourself. Um, how did you approach yeah. this? Well, when it came to film, I watched a movie every day, mm -hmm. it, it, you know, uh, uh, particularly during the last six months of writing it. I was often writing, watching one for lunch and one with my wife and uh, either mother-in-law or parents because we lived with both over the course of the early months of the pandemic. And then after my daughter would go to bed, we would watch another one, you know, with the parents. So um, that, that's part of it is just you have to like be immersed you know, and really pay attention <laughs> and really pay attention yeah. or write down time codes to go back later. Uh, and, no, but yeah. you have to be really immersed in it. And, but when it comes to theater, obviously it's like, you know, there's the theater on film and tape archive at the New York public library, which is really helpful, but it only goes back so far. And, you know, those are um, filmed stage performances and stage performances, you know, filmed with the camera in the back of the house. It's only so good. So instead you have to rely on the record of people who saw it. 
you know, and mm. that goes beyond the reviews because often when you're talking about an iconic performance like um, Kim Stanley in Bus Stop on Broadway, Marlon Brando in Streetcar on Broadway, um, uh, you know, just to give two examples, there's um, Al Pacino in his first couple of performances, Dustin Hoffman in the play A, which was this farce that ran off Broadway that Alan Arkin directed. Um, often actors have given interviews about seeing those performances and what they were like, you know, so it's not because it, it was inspiring to them. They're like, oh, my God, I can't believe it. I saw this. And it was like that. And so you look for those interviews. Sometimes you're interviewing someone who has seen those stage performances. I, I talked extensively with Austin Pendleton, who mm. had worked with Kim Stanley and had seen Kim Stanley on stage a whole bunch of times. And he was able to describe what that was like. So, you know, you just have to trust your sources and, and go with it. You know, um, Stella Adler at the end of a play that she did with the group, I, I write about this in the book, um, has had this like very famous emotional breakdown on stage where she had just shot her lover. And then as he's dying, she cradles him and she starts kind of like moaning uncontrollably. And the reason why I was able to describe that is that, you know, that was the acting highlight of the season. Brooks Atkinson wrote about it. Bobby Lewis wrote about it in his memoir. Noel Coward would come to second act the show or actually third act the show just to see that moment. So it's like you have a lot of descriptions floating around of what it actually was like. So I want to, you know, you mentioned earlier you know, De Niro and the physical transformation and that started, you know, this whole thing and now acting is seen as this, you have to become the person you're playing, especially if you're playing a real person. Like I think a good example from last year is at the end of Elvis, they put the two together, Austin Butler versus Elvis. So can you talk a little bit about sort of that and why do you see that that's the sort of acting that now gets awards and there's usually at least one acting award every year that wins an Oscar for being not this year but usually that wins an, an Oscar for playing a real yeah. person so can you talk about sort of like how that became the best acting? Sure. yeah I mean I I hate that trend to be very very clear not that there <laughs> oh, are people who do God, it well same. I mean, you know, like, <laughs> Daniel Day-Lewis's Lincoln is an incredible performance as, as an example right it's, it's not it, it's just as a trend that I hate it um, mm -hmm. on an aesthetic level hate this thing at the end of biopics where they show you photos photos and footage of the real person I, I i don't understand it it drives me bonkers it just seems like a way of being like didn't we do didn't the wig department do a great job <laughs> that's really how it how it seems to me yeah. you know yeah. can you believe that matt damon put on 20 pounds to play this guy in air or you know whatever I, it just drives me crazy although the funniest one was of course in argo because Ben Affleck was playing a short, portly Latin man. <laughs> and, uh, uh, yeah. uh, so when they show the photo, you're like, this guy looks nothing like you at all. Yeah. Like um, physically, racially, he's just like, you know, but more seriously. Um, so I just hate all of those trends. Uh, uh, so my reading of that trend is probably maybe a little unfair, but uh, uh, because I hate it. But I, I do think it goes back to this idea of like, no one has any idea what's good anymore. So let's, uh, you know, show our homework. Let's show how much homework we did. You know, it's mm. almost like that, the, what they call apple polishing. You know, when you have a student who's a real kiss ass and follows all the rules, you know, it's like the <laughs> apple polishing. It's like, you know, look at, look at all of this work. Meryl Streep normally looks like this, but when she plays uh, Margaret Thatcher, she looks like this. Isn't that amazing folks? And it's like, yeah, okay, fine. But actually you know, what's even more incredible is when you could do a complete transformation that doesn't, that's about the the truth of who the, who the human being is, you know? Yeah. Um, um, uh, and I think the thing about folks like De Niro or even Olivier, who, you know, would use a lot of prosthetics, his whole thing was a lot of prosthetics and he would figure out the walk and voice of the character, is they got to something that only they could get to and they could only get to it doing that kind of process. You know, they needed that and it unlocked something like like those De Niro performances in the 70s are really you have to imagine seeing them in their time. You just be like, no one's ever done anything like this. Um, but now I think it's a kind of awards bait cliche uh, uh, and it's really about um, having a narrative that you can sell to the PR machine. Yeah, is, is, is yeah. Really what I think it is.
I mean, I also, I think there becomes a point where it's like, it's not even impressive anymore because you're hiding behind all of those, you know, the wigs and the costumes and all of these things. It's like how much of it is just literally we are seeing something that looks exactly like a thing that we know. And kind yeah. of, it's like, I don't know. It's so uh, boring. It's real. Um, yes. It's, it's, it's really boring. I do think that there is a way, you know, you, when a bio biopic is done, well, biopics are almost never done well, but when, you know, they, 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 there's some sort of the actor and who they're playing kind of meet in the middle in this interesting way, you know, like Capote is, I think a really great example yeah. of that. I'm not right. there or something. I mean, I'm not there. It's, that's its own kettle of fish, right? Because that's like <laughs> kind of experimental yeah. um, 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 biopic. And again, with Lincoln, you know, we don't have footage of Lincoln. So uh, part of what's what's wonderful about that is is seeing this kind of imagining of what he might have been like. It's much harder when there's an extensive photographic and particularly filmed record of the subject, you know? Yeah. Because uh, then, like, how are you? How do you even go about it? It's really tricky. Yeah. It's so funny that people want to make, uh, like, even when they like a performance of a fictional character, they try to, you know, create a narrative of like, oh, this was a real person like they did with Tar last year. Um, so anyway. <laughs> I mean, that that Tar thing was really confusing to me. I thought it was a funny joke. I thought, uh, you know, <laughs> once it became this really, once it became a funny, like, it just became this weird bit that everyone was doing on the internet. Um, uh but I was really like, what the hell is going on here? But it seems to me that there is a certain kind of um, thing that has happened as a result of fan culture that increasingly has to do with treating fictional characters as if they're real people that I think is largely bad for art. I mean, you know, because they're yeah. not real people. And I think it's it, 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 it like, you know, uh, sex scene discourses like this, shipping discourses like this you know like they're not real they're characters and um uh in in fictionalized narratives and so part of what is great about that is that they can behave in ways and do things that normal people would not and we can experience that as the as the audience that's like one of the things art does and so i think if we're always insisting that on some level they're real or they exist or or you know, we're having parasocial relationships with Roman Roy or whatever. It, it puts <laughs> us in a place where, where um, art loses its fictive power. Because mm -hmm. actually a lot of art's power comes from the fact that, I'm talking about fiction art here, not nonfiction mm -hmm. art, but yeah. part of its power comes from the fact that it isn't real. Yeah, That someone had to make it up. That's part of where the power comes from, actually. Mm -hmm. um, um, just as there's truth value to nonfiction, there's a uniquely there's a unique imaginative power to fiction. Yeah, uh, have totally. any uh, actors like approached you about this book and talked to you about their responses to it and how it maybe informed what they were thinking about? Oh yeah, um, actually, the one of the most gratifying things about the book has been actors I've met um, uh, who tell me wonderful things. That they feel about it. I'm not gonna. I mean, after a while, you don't a name drop. Like, <laughs> yeah, you it sounds name, name droppy. Drop. It sounds name droppy. It sounds star fuckery. It sounds also like I'm just like talking about like. Let me tell you all the um stories about yeah. how great I am. It's like the. I'm worried it'll come across like that Nathan Fiedler tweet where he's like, my friends are just here. They're just oh, out yeah. of laughing at my. You know. Uh, so I, I don't want to get into the specifics of that, but um, I've talked to a bunch of actors who have said really wonderful things about it. Some of them are famous. Some of them are not, mm -hmm. you know, um, uh, uh, acting teachers have gotten in touch to say how much it meant to them. Um, I recently, uh, my high school, the woman who ran the high school theater program at my high school who just retired and like directed me in all the plays and, and musicals in high school told me how much she loved it. That meant Aww. a lot to me. That's um, amazing. That's yeah, so cool. Yeah. So so that's meant a lot to me. It's similarly meant a lot to me when people who have to write about acting or are writing a profile of an actor reach out to be like, hey, this was really helpful for helping me figure out how to think through this. So that is really, really gratifying. John Garfield's daughter wrote me to tell me how much it meant to her that I, I was sort of, you know, she's worried about her dad being forgotten and that I keep mm. insisting on his importance to the method story um, that I mean, I was like crying when I got that email. So I, I and, and every now and then you'll hear an interview with someone on NPR, you know, an actor in a show and they'll mention <laughs> the book and that the, all of that stuff is in, incredibly, incredibly 
gratifying to me. It means yeah. an, an enormous, enormous amount. You know, when you do something like write a book, which is a, a weird thing to do because it means you're spending years with this subject and then all, you know, it, it, it could be that no one reads it, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, like, like, you know, yeah. you're, you're always, there's a fanciful dream that you have. Um, yeah. And so a thing that I learned from my theater career that really helped keep me sane is, you know, establish your own criteria for success um, and preferably write them down before the work comes out, whether it's a play opening or a book or, you know, whatever. And that way you don't get sucked into the industry's idea of success or other people's ideas of success or whatever, A. And B, if you fail, right, at least you know it. You're like, yeah. and it's on terms that you decided. And yeah. so the terms that I came up with were, you know, for some people that might be, I'm going to write a bestseller. That was not what I wanted. This is what I wanted that it sell enough copies that the publisher was happy. <laughs> One, <laughs> you know, uh, uh, which is way lower than being a bestseller. Two, that it be present in and intervene in the national conversation around acting that's going mm. on. Three, I think it's well-written. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, oh, it absolutely uh, is. Oh my god. Yeah, yeah. And, and that, you know, wow. and that the circle of friends who are honest with me and whose opinion I trust think that it's well written. And it accomplished all of those things. And so everything else is really uh uh delicious, delicious, delicious gravy at this point. Yeah. You know, I think yeah, you have two people here who think it's also well written, and that's why yeah. we wanted to talk to you. <laughs> I, I, I should also say uh appearing on this podcast was number four. Definitely oh, number there, four. there you go. Wow. <laughs> There, there you go. So um, Isaac, we could really talk to you like all day, but we always end this with this bit where we send it to Betty Davis and her famous line, take it away, Betty. What a dump. You know, what do you want to dump on? What is like irking you right now? So my question to you about this is in your research about the method, you know, you wrote this wonderful book. What have you found something that really irked you about? acting or about the method itself what do you kind of want to you know have a soapbox or a couple of minutes to dump on today <laughs> amazing about the method or about the way people talk about it or whatever yeah could be anything um that's that's really interesting i mean i've spent a lot of time on social media dumping on the confusion about what the what the method is right the kind of calling mm -hmm. the jeremy strong method and stuff but we already did that earlier today so you've yeah. taken away my you've taken away my i know my, and we took away evening. biopics <laughs> and you took away biopics i know um this is what i'll dump on i i think that you know one thing i really learned through this book is that regardless of what methodology or techniques or theories or ideas one uses in their own work or teaches, you know, the real enemy of art on that front is um, dogmatism and closed-mindedness. There's lots of different ways of being a good actor. There are lots of different ways of being a good acting teacher. There are lots of different techniques that are going to help actors get to better, more truthful performances. They might be external. They might be internal. They might be dream work. A lot of actors are really into this dream work stuff now um, uh, where they talk. There's this like specific woman who's a dream work therapist and she works with them on that and the characters come out of it. Um, uh, it might be, you know, gymnastics training. I don't know. There's lots of different, there's lots of different routes to it. And so I think the problem, you know, really comes when whatever approach it is, people get super dogmatic mm -hmm. about. It. And so I think as long as you're not making life difficult for your colleagues or abusing, mm -hmm. uh, or whatever, we should approach uh, um, people's different ideas about acting with an open mind. I think we should we should try to be yep. open minded because there's a lot of different routes to the truth, and acting's a weird job. <laughs> that is true. Um, <laughs> so I'm gonna dump on just something we talked about earlier, and you know I'll add to what you're saying, and I'll just say I wish more people would admit their method actors 
or tell us about their method. I am tired of hearing actors saying, I don't have a method. It just happens. It's a thing that happens. I can't talk about it. I want to know. I want to know, tell me what you do, what gets you to, you know, where you give that amazing performance or how you, how you get there. I want more, more actors to be, um, I guess, um, open about that. Yeah, totally. Uh, make jo my job easier. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What about you, Izzy? I, I think mine would be HUAC. <laughs> <laughs> um you know really I mean, really with the contemporary take i know here. i know it's a Q contemporary Q take it's bad it's bad but here's the thing i feel like um there are too many contemporary analogies to it that i worry about happening if that makes sense so just like the instinct to clamp down on an artist's work is coming back in a big way i feel and so um I would love for, you know, speaking of like, I guess the dogmatism that the dogmatism, the other way of being like, we control what art looks like. And it only looks like what a very vocal minority thinks it should look like. Um, you know, so yeah, I just, I guess I would like to dump on HUAC because they're an easy villain for that kind of thinking. Watch out. They're going <laughs> to ban this podcast in Florida. <laughs> oh, I know. Oh my God. Making me root uh, for Disney. Uh, God. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I think these are three very good um, dumps. Betty Davis would be proud. Isaac, again, thank you so much. Um, I'm a huge fan of your writing of the book. It was such an honor and a fun conversation to have you. Yes. Thank you. Yeah. A joy um, to be on here. Thank you. And before we go, can you let our listeners know where they can find you and your work and where they can get this book if they haven't gotten it yet? I assume most yeah. of them have. Well, there's a few places. I am on Twitter. My handle is Parabasis, P-A-R-A-B-A-S-A. Contributor to Slate, a bunch of other places. You can subscribe to my podcast at slate.com slash working. Just joined uh, Blue Sky. I, so if you're a Blue Sky person, uh, Isaac Butler dot B sky dot dot social. Uh, if you haven't got an invite yet, I don't know how to get one. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you can find me on Twitter at M E underscore says and read my criticism on variety and the AV club. I just reviewed, uh, Paul Trader's master gardener and that's on the AV club. Uh, you can find me at be kind rewind on youtube uh, i have a video coming out about mildred pierce which talks a lot about acting um oh great yeah so hopefully if anyone listening wants to hear that check it out on youtube um and you can find us uh the show at i am picture show on twitter and instagram once again thank you so much isaac butler for a wonderful conversation my pleasure thank you for having me